You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now it's time for something completely different. The news from Armenia, which held elections on Sunday. Before the election, Armenia had the first insurrection in a post-Soviet state that legitimately boiled up from the streets, free of influence from outside forces. That's what Mark Cooper says. He's a contributing editor at The Nation and a retired professor of journalism at the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. He's traveled the world covering politics and culture for dozens of publications, ranging from Playboy and Rolling Stone to the LA Times and the Times of London. He's also been a reporter and a producer of news documentaries for CBS News, The Christian Science Monitor, and PBS Frontline. He's written many books. His book, Pinochet and Me, a Chilean anti-memoir, is out now in paperback. And he founded and hosted the predecessor of this podcast, Radio Nation, which he ran for 10 years and which at its peak was aired on more than 100 public and community radio stations. Mark Cooper, welcome to the program. No, thank you, John. Well, you call Armenia a small light of hope and progressive change in a Europe increasingly shadowed by authoritarian and dictatorial forces, especially in most of the former Soviet bloc states of Eastern Europe. We want to talk about the election results from Sunday, but first, let's start with Armenia before this revolt started. What was Armenia like politically after the fall of the Soviet Union? You know, I was not there in uh 1991, when it gained its formal independence or declared its formal independence. And I've been told that there was a short period of elation. But really, for the last 25 years, without being sarcastic about it, I'd say the the outstanding feature of Armenia was sort of a national depression. I'm not talking about an economic depression. I'm talking about a psychological one. The Armenians are very homogenous uh, people, very industrious, uh, generally high educated. The Soviets had turned it into sort of a science center, so there's a lot of scientists roaming around. But politically, 
it was what you call a sort of a hybrid regime. It was on paper a constitutional democracy, but there was a thin crust of uh, economic and political oligarchs who really had an iron grip on the entire country. Unlike some other examples, it was not a particularly repressive place. It was not a police state, and it wasn't a place where uh, people were, you know, disappeared on a regular basis, etc. But the police were definitely corrupt, and more important than that, uh, the political system was completely and totally locked up. There was no real significant opposition able to operate in the parliament. The press was all owned by the state or by uh, other oligarchs and engaged in radical self-censorship. And being a landlocked country of three million people with its border closed to Turkey and its border closed to Azerbaijan in a frozen war, a frozen conflict since 1988 with Azerbaijan over disputed territory, the country main export was people. The biggest problem they faced was depopulation because it's a beautiful place, but uh, there weren't many jobs and uh, there just uh, was a glass ceiling wherever you went. If you weren't connected, you were out. And in a small country like that, and it is very small, made social mobility and even basic economic entrepreneurship very, very difficult. And then all of this changed over the last year. Tell us how this whole thing got started. Well, you know, there's been a decade of, of eruptions, of short, uh, over a series of issues that were mostly incohate and unorganized, but spontaneous, sort of like the Occupy movement in the United States, over certain issues, usually around electoral fraud, but also around electricity rates and things like that. And you'd have three, four, or five days of protest, generally peaceful. A few dozen people would get arrested, and that would be it. But there's been sort of a building of that. The explosion that the country's currently going through was set off in April when the two-time president, uh, Serge Sargassian, who was, you know, the embodiment of oligarchic rule, uh, had changed the Constitution so that when he was termed out in March or April, he could then move to a newly empowered position of prime minister as opposed to president. That then assumed, under the new Constitution, all executive power. And was, and as in any parliamentary system was, uh, elected by the uh, by the parliament, right? Which his Republican Party completely and totally controlled. Well, that threw a match. That was really the the straw that broke the camel's back. And people did not want this sort of indefinite rule by Sargassian. So this unassuming but very charismatic lifelong opposition activist a 43-year-old editor and journalist named Nicole Pashinian went out tilting against windmills and announced that he would march 
with whoever would follow him from the second city of Armenia to the capital to protest this elongation of power by the oligarchs. And he began a march with, I don't think, more than a few dozen people. It took him uh, a couple of weeks, and by the time he got to Yerevan, the capital, there were thousands of people following him. And when he got into Yerevan, all of a sudden there were 10,000 and 20,000 and 100,000 people in a city of only a million. So, you know, almost every able adult was in the street completely peacefully, no violence almost in a carnival atmosphere, and for 11 days they occupied the city. And they wow. just did not move. And he would, Pashinian would, you know, wander around and make these speeches, etc. And the government had no idea what to do. The military and police showed no interest in shooting their own people. And uh, there was a fantastic moment where uh, after 11 days uh of this, the the prime minister, Sargassian, suggested that he and Pashinian meet to negotiate. And Pashinian said, sure, but it has to be an open negotiation. So it was public and it was on television and it was like wow. on a stage. People wow. could see it. And Sargassian says to Pashinian, okay, what do we have to talk about? What? Let's set an agenda. And Pashinian was funny. He said, well, it's really easy. There's only one point on the agenda. It's like, what are you going to resign? (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, that was it. He got up and walked away. And uh, turned out that a couple of days later, the parliament that is solidly, was solidly anti-Pashinian, voted to make Pashinian prime minister because it was either that or civil war. And uh, that's how the, if you will, the revolution came to pass. The astounding part is that since May, and again, the details of this are very, very uh, complicated, but the bottom line is that for seven months, Pashinian has governed without a majority. And at any moment, the parliament could have taken him down with one vote of no confidence, but they were afraid because when they tried back in October, which was already four months after the revolt, they tried to monkey around with the law that would permit the elections that happened on Sunday. But she didn't put out one Facebook message and within uh, an hour, there were 20, 30,000 people in front of the parliament in the street. Wow. Uh, yeah ready to storm it. So for seven months, Pashinian was able to leverage his popular support to hold these guys back and stage Armenia's first really free election in almost 30 years on Sunday. And Pashinian won 70 or 71% of the vote. His allies won another 15% of the vote. And uh, the Republican Party, this is amazing, that had governed as a monopoly for 25 years, got less than 5% of the vote. Wow. <laughs> but it shows you how, how radically unpopular they were. So what kind of revolution is this? What are the politics of 
Nicole Pashini. Right. Well, that's the million-dollar question. It's easy to say what it isn't. It is not an anti-Russian uprising as it was in Georgia or the Ukraine in many ways. I think the youth of Armenia are very pro-Western. The older people tend to be a little bit more sympathetic to the Russians. But Armenia is inextricably economically and militarily tied to Moscow. There's just no way around that. So it was not uh, an anti-Russian deal. Uh, It was not something that was encouraged, uh, financed, uh, supported overtly or covertly by uh, the State Department or AID or any of the other sort of... uh, American influences in Eastern Europe or the or the economic or the European Union for that matter. And its primary stated goals are to do away with corruption and to institute a functioning democracy. The anti corruption campaign already began in the last six months and has been quite effective given the lack of parliamentary power that Pashinian had until then. An ex-president was arrested. Several corrupt oligarchs were arrested. There were raids on banks and some corrupt police officials. Overnight, because I was there shortly before the revolution and then for a month afterward, overnight, the traffic police stopped (laughs) collecting money from motorists. So the real question, the bottom, bottom line here is that If you put this into ideological terms, the real dilemma these guys face is that the country desperately needs foreign investment. You know, it's poor and it needs to build wealth and it needs to open up those borders and it needs investment and trade. On the other hand, you know, 40% of the population lives in poverty and while it wasn't put into ideological terms, a lot of the rhetoric of, about the revolution was that there was just too many poor people and too much inequality and that it was time for poor people to get their due. There was no explicitly socialist rhetoric because after 70 years of uh, Soviet rule, uh, that's not real popular in a place like Armenia, at least the the sort of rhetoric that comes with it. The programs might be more popular, but not not the notion of turning it into a socialist republic. So it's anybody's guess at this moment. I think the best way to describe it is that that the revolution is about democracy, transparency, for sure, anti-corruption, for sure, and probably some sort of social democracy, some sort of state intervention in the you know, social insurance system, in the welfare system, in education, and in unions, and a lot of theory that some of us on the left have uh, sort of gets immediately challenged because you put yourself in, in Pashinian shoes and say, well, what do we do? <laughs> you know, uh, how do you maneuver this between investment and welfare? How do you maneuver between the East and the West? 
how do you keep the Russians, you know, not going crazy? And how do you keep a leash on the oligarchs that you've pushed out of power? It's, it's not an easy job. Mark Cooper, he wrote about Armenia's revolution for The Nation. You can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Mark. Great to have you on the show. Uh, you're welcome. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.